Hi, I'm Greg Thompson. After years of conducting interviews, I've found that when I can sit with friends one-on-one, the deepest questions of our spirituality and who we are as humans, and what we're discerning to be our purpose in life just naturally rise to the surface. However, having recently come out as a gay man myself, people are often surprised that I still have faith at all. Being gay and being spiritual seem like a conflict of interest to others, but not to me. One of the first things I did when I came out was ask for help. I called friends who were gay and also raised Roman Catholic like me, and I listened to their stories. No one had found some secret formula for how to make these conflicting identities somehow get along, but I felt a camaraderie and a hope in just knowing that I wasn't alone. And it allowed me to come out fully to myself and eventually to my family and even in my church community. Welcome to Out Loud, a show for building that same camaraderie across wherever you identify on the queer spectrum and on the faith spectrum. At this intersection of faith and sexuality, we'll be hearing stories from LGBTQIA identifying individuals and publishing them for others to hear and heal, share and understand. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Zach Eggleston, a graduate student at Vanderbilt Divinity School pursuing his master's in theological studies. Zach went to Lipscomb University for his undergraduate, where he majored in worship ministry, an interdisciplinary major in both theological studies and in music. He's also a musician, having grown up playing the piano and singing in the choir, and singing in worship settings in college. Zach identifies as gay, with the gender pronouns he, him, his, and worships in the Church of Christ now. Zach's story evokes honesty in exploring his identity as a man at a young age, as well as curiosity in his understanding of the Bible. For him, music is a tool that has helped him express this journey as it unfolds. As a warning to parents or younger listeners, we discuss some adult situations early in this episode, so if you jump ahead by just about six minutes, you'll be just fine. And now, let's take a listen. So let's dive in in terms of how you identify in the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Tell me about when did you first know? <laughs> um, well, I first understood that I wasn't straight um, when I was in ninth grade and I was falling into the pattern that many young adolescent men find themselves falling into of looking at things on the internet that they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And I realized that the things I was looking at were not images of women, but of men. Um, And that really freaked me out. Um, Did you realize that at the time? I realized that I was looking at men. Um, I didn't. Did you make no. that connection? No. Okay. I didn't I didn't know what was happening. Okay. Um, I just knew that that wasn't supposed to be happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I've I've been very blessed with parents that are awesomely understanding. Um, not always celebratory, but they're always um, loving and respectful and do their best to understand. Mm. Um, and so I went to them with that. Um, and I told them what was happening and they were, um, mostly annoyed because I did it when I couldn't fall asleep because I felt so guilty at 1am. They were like, Zach, we're trying to sleep. 
that was that was so their you, primary response. You went response. to them one night at one a.m. I this. did, and this is still in ninth grade. Yeah. Okay. The, their primary response was just go back to bed. Inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, they they were very affirming that that I'm still loved and that I'm I'm still their son, um, mm. but that we have some things to work through. Yeah. Um, which was very true. Um, so they helped me in the ways that I thought I needed help, which was like software that would um, prevent me from going to certain websites. Okay. Um, but of course, I am a millennial, if not the step after millennial, because no one knows where that, that <laughs> line that is. going to be, yeah. Um, and I, of course, found ways around it. Right. Um, and so when I kept going down that road, um, it kept driving me into this place of like shame and mm. um, confusion and just general anxiety. Um, and so when my parents realized that I didn't feel like I was worthy of being loved or that God could even love me, um, they were like, all right, yeah, no, we need to get you to counseling. Um, and I really didn't want to go because of the stigma attached to it. Um, the stigma but, that the counseling would be to change you or no the just the stigma of going to counseling at all okay of of needing help of, yeah in in terms of the mental health space yeah. in general yeah yeah okay okay um and um i kind of pushed back against it but they convinced me to go mm-hmm. um and we tried out a couple different people um and we landed on one guy and he kind of analyzed, not analyzed, helped me process what was going on. Um, and it, it started a lot farther down than I thought it did. My, my shame was mostly coming from my inability to identify as a man, um, mm-hmm. of, of not feeling like I was masculine or, um, or strong or anything that I thought a man should be, yeah. um, and a lot of that stemmed from um, I was molested when I was eight um, by a neighbor um, who, he was one of my friends at the time, a couple years older than me, um, but it really affected the way that I viewed myself. I always kind of thought I was at fault, and so that, oh, geez. yeah, Damn. it was not, not great, um, but it kind of carried throughout everything I did. I didn't really trust other guys my age. I didn't, um, I hated locker rooms. Um, yeah. Cause it just felt vulnerable. I, um, bathrooms as well. Um, and then I mostly was just friends with girls because they were safe. I understood how to exist around them. They weren't going to try and take advantage of me. Yeah. Um, and so when, I went to counseling, um, we kind of tried to work through that. This was, it started the second half of my 10th grade year and continued throughout high school. Um, But yeah, we focused primarily on um, getting over the shame that I had attached to that. understanding that that what had happened was not my fault and that I was that I could name it as being molested um, and not just say like 
I messed up and this happened or, yeah. or that I uh, did something to lead to this, um, that, that it was something that I was not at fault at. Yeah. Um, and so once we got over that hump, um, we um, focused on my self-conception um, and, and that dealt more with my sexuality. Um, but we, we tried to focus on just identifying myself as masculine. Um, and so I realized through that process that there are things about myself that are very strong. Uh, for instance, the way that I fight for my friends and the things that I believe in, um, the way that I love people and, and want to protect them like are all things that I had never considered before as, as masculine. But, but when we thought about it in like this warrior perspective, Hmm. um, it, it really reoriented a lot of the other ways I see myself. Um, I, I was able to look at the things that I liked about how I was and to understand them in a way that made me feel like I was a man. Um, And so that was very healthy and important for me, especially as I was about to go to college, um, to be able to feel like there was this um, fundamental part of my identity that was centered in in being a man. And so when I went to college, I still didn't really have a firm grasp on my sexuality. I didn't really know how I identified. Um, I really wanted to like girls. (laughs) Yeah. Both because I'm really good at being friends with girls. Sure. Um, But then also just because it's what's expected. I'm a guy, so I should like girls. Um, And I think I managed to make myself like some girls a couple times. I I think I managed to force it. because I, I tend to be emotionally in tune with women. Um, it's easy for me to read them and to understand what's going on um, with them just because that's, I tend to, do, to gravitate towards them and be friends with them. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, that's not a catch-all by any means. There are plenty <laughs> of women that I just do not Zach understand. Zach understands all women. <laughs> Come to me, I will solve all of your problems. <laughs> Not at yeah, all. Yeah, be careful with that. <laughs> um, but so the friends that I had tended to be women because I, I understood them. And, and so yeah. I really wanted to have that translate into a romantic aspect as well. Sure. Um, but it just never worked because I was never physically attracted to them. Yeah. Um, I was able to say, wow, you are beautiful. But I have no interest in, in saying anything other than that. Yeah. Um, or, or doing anything other than just complimenting you. Like that's the extent of my physical reaction to you. Um, and so I, I have this like pull to say, okay, well, I guess I'm bi, um, because like emotionally I'm kind of attracted to women. Like I'm really close to them. Um, but I do still have this physical attraction to men. Um, and it wasn't really until, I guess, my junior year of college that 
I, I studied abroad for a semester and I didn't click with the guys on my trip. Uh-huh. Through college, I had made a lot of guy friends and, and really cemented my, my view of myself in my masculinity. Um, and then really grown comfortable in the ways that I express femininity as well. Mm. Um, but when I went abroad, it was with a group of Lipscomb students. There were, I think, 30 of us. Um, and we were in Austria for three months and I did not click with the guys at all. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up hanging out with mostly girls again and it felt like a huge step back for me. Um, like I had made so much progress of investing in relationships and friendships with men and hanging out with them and understanding myself as someone who wants to be seen as a man, I guess. Yeah. Um, that I, I felt like it was regressive for me to now just hang out with only women for three months <laughs> in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language and we were doing like extensive traveling. Um, so I spent a 10 day trip going through Scandinavia with three girls and it was awesome. Yeah. I loved it. Um, <laughs> But it, it would have been kind of cool to also have a guy there, apart from me. Um, and in, in that experience of feeling like I was stepping back, it felt lonely and isolated, I guess. Like, there's, there's value and benefit for me of being very close with women. I don't feel necessarily as fully seen, I guess, by people who are not men Mm. and I think it's just like a fundamental identity thing like I I really identify with people who are LGBTQ because I identify as LGBTQ and and so I in in my masculinity I don't feel like I can be as fully seen by women as I can by men so when I don't have a, a close relationship with with people who identify with what I identify with, it feels like I'm not a scene. But in the midst of all of that feeling like I was unseen, I learned um, to lean more into my faith. Okay. Um, that was constant in, in the midst of all of this shifting and mm. instability. Um, and so I, I learned to trust a lot more that God was going to remain constant in my life, regardless mm-hmm. of what happened. Um, and so I did start coming out to some of the girls on my trip as gay. Um, and they were all really awesome about it yeah. and really positive. Um, and um, in, in doing so, especially in an environment that I couldn't run away from it after I did it. I was mm. stuck with them yeah. in, in a foreign country. Like I can't just, For weeks and weeks, yeah. can't just go home. Um, That's bold. <laughs> yeah. It, so that kind of gave me the confidence once I came back to mm. Nashville to start coming out to people that I trusted and, and the people that I cared about mm. um, and, and do so as a gay man. Um, and, and claim that identity. Yeah. Um, and so I was in Greek life and I came out to my um, social club, which is what we call our quote unquote fraternities or sororities um, okay. at Lipscomb. They're not, they're only local. They're not 
national chapters or anything. Uh-huh. Um, and then additionally, fraternity and sorority comes loaded with so many connotations. Mm-hmm. So social club it was, um, <laughs> I guess. Um, so I came out to my social club and I got nothing but positive and affirming reactions. Yeah. And mm-hmm. shockingly, that was the entirety of my experience of being gay at Lipscomb is that I never had a negative reaction. That's amazing. It is because I know people who did not have that experience in that same school. Sure. Um, But after coming out to my club, they still elected me to officer positions. Um, And of course, once you tell a group of 40 guys at a small Christian school something, like it's going to get out. Yeah. And so like, Plenty of people knew, um, and and I didn't shy away from telling them if it felt relevant. Um, if I was talking about something where it mattered, I'd just say, well, I'm gay, and, and so this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and in spite of that, or maybe even because of that, um, I was elected to SGA my senior year, and so even though I was navigating kind of this conservative college environment um as a queer person i was still accepted and respected and viewed as a leader Mm. um and i think a lot of that has come from how i identify as part of the lgbtq population of, of claiming this identity and saying i defy the expectation that this eliminates me from a faith, um, from a faith at all, but then a, a faith um, community centered around Christianity, even if it's conservative. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to claim that for myself and I'm going to go live through it and, and live in such a way that you will see the validity of my faith and my personhood and my... Um, God image in me Mm -hmm. Um, and that hopefully in doing that I will um, open your heart and and expose you to some other way of of thinking about queer people and the potential that there is for them in faith I think I've always tried to navigate through the world that's a phrase I go back to a lot, but like the way that I walk through or navigate through the world um, has always been trying to identify myself as a Christian and as a human. And those are the two labels that I will claim as nouns, but then everything else I want is an adjective. Mm. Um, I, d- I don't want um, gay or queer to become my identity your soul identity. I want it, yeah. yeah, I want yeah. it to be something that definitely is fundamental to who I am, but is not central. Yeah. Um, that, that, that definitely influences the way, or I, I guess the perspective I have as I walk through the world, mm-hmm. um, but not the vehicle that I move through it in. You seem like you handle the so much of this very maturely over time i mean in in that you you asked questions and you went to a lot of good resources and that's not um 
I don't know how common that is. <laughs> yeah. I wish it was able to be more common. And I feel like a lot of it stemmed from the way that my parents raised mm. me and the environment that they raised me in. My mom um, was in, she was an elementary and high school guidance counselor. Okay. And so she's used to stories that have run the gamut of everything. Sure. Um, and just showing acceptance and concern and love to mm. people. And then my dad um, is such a research-oriented guy mm. that he just wants to know all the information all the time about everything. Um, and so he, he rarely passes judgment on anything immediately. Um, so Before it can be scientifically proven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, or like in, in some way cemented sure um Hmm. and so when i come to him with issues it's he never um is judgmental in response he he just says okay well what do we do next yeah um and that's how he's been my whole life too when i came to he was in the army he was a he went to state wrestling in high school like he is your typical conception of like a male, I guess. Sure. Um, yeah. And and when I came along and I, I said, hey, Dad, I want to take piano lessons, he would do the research to find out who I could take from. Or when I came to him in high school and said, hey, I think I want to take ballet class, he researched the shoes that I needed, the, awesome. <laughs> the like outfit and the, the pieces of um, clothing that I, I would need. Um, the places where I could take classes. Um, and so he's always just been like incredibly willing to, to move with me as I, as I go along. Um, and he's been that way around my sexuality as well. Both of my parents come from more traditional conservative mm-hmm. understandings of faith and theology. And I, I remember growing up um, doing those kind of, like, fielding questions um, of, like... Seeing what they might think uh, about yeah, things. Yeah, I was like, how, how would you vote on gay marriage? Yeah. Um, just, like, <laughs> that, that undercover question of how do you feel about me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and they would say we would vote against it, but if it happens, we're going to respect it. Like, civil unions are an option, so people should take advantage of that. Um, but it's, most queer people know that's not satisfying. Um, <laughs> and so I, I understood that their faith centered them on this issue, a place other than what I would wish it was. Um, mm-hmm. But since then, my dad has poured a lot into researching um, theologies surrounding the like, six or seven Bible verses that um, center around what we now consider LGBTQ issues. Yeah. Um, but it's, there's no way to directly compare them to the situation 2,000 years ago or in ancient Israel. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't, it's a struggle for me always to say that those are the, the verse of the Bible that deal with LGBTQ people because they don't in the modern conception of, of that group, of that population. But um, he's been researching a lot into um, 
how theology is viewed by queer people, mm -hmm. um, various arguments for and against. Um, and I think he's coming around to a place where um, he's going to be more supportive and affirming, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they've always told me that they're going to love whoever I bring home. Um, so I have no worry about them accepting me. I'm just always, there's always this little piece in the back of my mind. It's like, well, what do you think about me theologically? But yeah. compared to their reaction, that means nothing. Like they've always just been loving. So I've been very blessed. And, and that, that meant a lot to the way that I moved through. I moved through the world. Goodness, I need to stop saying it. <laughs> <laughs> the way that I um, tried to figure out my sexuality is that I, I asked questions and yeah. I uh, tried to find the people that would help me get there. And um, because my dad is kind of oriented towards withholding judgment, I, it translated to me putting like this physical aspect of my sexuality on pause as I just try to figure it out mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Because mm -hmm. um, I was like, there's a lot more important things than what I want to do with a person physically. I, and I, I want to figure those out before I try and do that. Um, which is not how most people do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I recognize that. But, um, yeah. Was there a point in coming out where you felt like you had to take some time and reconcile your sexuality with your beliefs? Oh, yeah. Like what? Um, I didn't... How did you start to approach that? Um, at first, I, I thought I was called to celibacy because of it. Uh -huh. um, when, when I really started to understand that, like, now I'm gay, I'm not anything other than just attracted to men. Um, that that I was like, well, that that just means, I guess, that I've been called to celibacy and singleness. Mm -hmm. um, and that phase lasted about a month before. I was like, <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, this is not going to work. <laughs> uh, so how did so, you reconcile that? Yeah, after that, um, it was a lot of, um, I think, just seeking out the work that had been done already. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't feel anywhere near equipped to form theological arguments or um, to, to say that I know what was being said when this was written. Mm -hmm. um, and so I looked for the work that people had done surrounding it. Matthew Vines has been particularly influential on, on how I view scripture and, mm -hmm. and its relation to um, my, my queer identity. Um, and I've also come to a reconciliation since then of realizing that it, our faith is based, or at least informed by a book that was written to specific populations in specific times thousands of years ago mm -hmm. um, and the understandings we have of who we are now are vastly different than the understandings of the people who were being written to um, 
And so it's comforting to me to know that I have both arguments that um, can kind of give scriptural grounds as to why I I feel I'm um, within the realm of of carrying out a um, intentional, faithful um, relationship with another man um, and still be in, in the intended creation of God. But then additionally to say that even if I didn't have those arguments, there's a lot of things that we, we are able to disregard um, because we recognize that, that this book was written to very different people than who we are now. Yeah. Um, and so I can find comfort in knowing that if we can do that with other things, we can probably also do that with this. Yeah. Um, so I guess the short answer to your question would be that reconciling has been half an act of fighting with and, and coming to understandings with the Bible and half just throwing it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to reconcile with this part and I'm going to ignore this. No, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been weird because it doesn't feel like I... <clears throat> just thrown out elements of it. Like I've tried to intentionally wrestle with it all, but there's come to this cohesion of, of understanding that faith evolves and, and the spirit moves in new ways. Um, that I don't think the Bible is going to be the ultimate resource for every question. Um, I I think a lot of it is going to come from consensus of believers who are, trying to do discerning work um and then also like like the bible has always been about a story of um the underdog Mm -hmm. finding acceptance and and love and success in the name of god um and i can i was gonna say a bad word um i can get down (laughs) with that (laughs) Does the Church of Christ have, or at least, oh, it's your your congregation, or or in general with other congregations, do they have a certain stance on homosexuality? Nothing that's like. If there's one that's expressed explicitly, it's usually that they're not welcome. Uh-huh. Um, but the ones that don't express it explicitly are usually somewhere in the realm of like you're welcome here. And we will love you, but you are called to singleness because of your sexuality. Okay. So there um, are conditions on that. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of um, caveats that come with existing in those spaces. That I'm familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> in the Catholic traditions as well. So. Okay. so where do you see, um, where do you see that heading possibly here? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I know that they'll land at least accepting, if not affirming, um, which to, to explain those terms, accepting is usually like, you're welcome Mm. here. Like I explained before, you're welcome here with some conditions. Um, if you don't meet those conditions, you can still be here, but like you can't fill leadership roles. You can't really volunteer Mm. with, with ministries. Um, so you can come on Sunday mornings, but that's about, that's about it. That's about it. Um, affirming is typically an affirmation that 
if you are in committed monogamous relationship, uh, then that is ordained by God and that that is permissible and in a full reflection of the intended creation of God. Um, so the hope for most LGBTQ people is that um, churches would be affirming. What I believe in is going to be sometimes different from where I worship on Sunday and what they say they mm -hmm. believe in, you know, word for word or yeah. line by line doctrine. But um, so with that being said, what um, what is your what does your faith mean to you then? Like what how does it feed you despite mm -hmm. where you may disagree? Why why do you go on Sunday? That's a hard question. And I think <laughs> part of it, which is just not an answer that I like, um, but that's an honest one, is because it's just the way I've always done it. Mm. Um, but but that's certainly not all of it. It's not just because it's it was handed down to me. Yeah. Um, I've wrestled with it, and I've, I've come to places where I've realized that um, I think the teachings of Jesus are the best way for me to understand how to navigate the world and, and how to interact with others through that yeah. of how to love justice and, and love, love. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's taught me more empathy than I think I could garner from most other faiths. Um, and again, this is just a, I never want to speak for anyone other than myself unless I explicitly say so. Um, <laughs> And so all of this is just for me. Like, I, I don't think I'd be able to garner as much empathy from another faith as I have from Christianity just because of the way that Jesus navigated um, mm -hmm. Rome and, and Israel at the time when he was around, um, that I am able to navigate where I am now in America mm -hmm. and the world and the populations that I exist in. Um, and so I, I have gathered so much hope and faith and purpose from that story. Um, and like I said earlier, I relate to people who also claim that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I go to church, is because I need those people in my life who can um, reinforce the why behind why I am doing things. Mm -hmm. um, that that I'm not just doing this because it needs to be done, but that I'm doing it because I believe that it is going to make the world a better place and that it's going to bring more of the peace and the um, promise of justice and hope and purpose that I have received into mm -hmm. the world. And I'm not going to force any specific thing on someone. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to hope to make space for them to find that in the way that they need to. Um, yeah. But I don't think a lot of people are granted that space. Yeah. And, and so that, that's why I believe and why I, I go to church and still subscribe to this faith is because it, it, it makes sense to me, I guess. It's, I, I don't have as eloquent of an answer to this question as I do to to some of these others, and I think it's just because it's a cosmic scale rather than just a personal one. Um, 
I think it's a great answer. I think, again, I can relate, but I think it's, it's helpful to have that touchstone to go back to, that community of faith, and even that consistency, perhaps, with the way you worship or, or what have you, but like just to have that to go back to mm-hmm. as a reminder. Because it can get really easy to kind of spin off on our own yeah. journeys or our own whatever's bothering us that week or whatever we're reading at the moment as kind of taking over our mm-hmm. worldview. And it's helpful to kind of to come back to Scripture, come back to the life yeah. of Christ and, and say, okay, this is a good example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or these people around me are good examples. Or there are other fights they're fighting that are good to keep in mind or to... Yeah. Um, or to say those are battles I can't fight, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I see I see value in that yeah. as well. I think it's also saved me from becoming an egomaniac. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think um, I definitely have probably a bigger ego than I should, um, <laughs> but um, I think existing in a place of faith that calls me to humility and calls me to um, things that I wouldn't want to do mm-hmm. if I were just on my own without it. Um, has been so helpful to the way that I um, understand myself as well. Um, Mm. It it has made me really intentional about what I value and what I need to let go of as I grow up and as I try and figure out more about who I am, Mm -hmm. Um, which made my, the way that I decided to try and figure out my sexuality all the more important, um, is that I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted to just, like, I guess, act on it. I don't. I wanted to date people, and I wanted to um, hold hands and kiss someone, and like, yeah. which is it sounds very like when I in my mind when I'm saying it, it sounds childish, and I know it doesn't. I know everyone really relates to that, yeah. um, or most people do, but. Um, that was the the way that I navigated my faith, I guess, and the way that I understood it um, is that I needed to turn away from some things in order to focus on things that mattered. Um, and so in that sense, it has really informed and I think benefited the way that I understand my sexuality, um, which I think would confuse a lot of people. And I kind of <laughs> like that. <laughs> what do you enjoy now about, whether it's writing music or performing, like what, what do you get out of it? Um, for me, the greatest thing about music is its effect on people. The effect to move mm-hmm. people um, and to make them feel things either stronger that they already feel or um, help them empathize with something they haven't felt. Mm. Um, I've always been drawn to music that is like emotionally moving and powerful. Mm. Um, and a lot of times that's sad music. My dad never understood it. (laughs) I was always listening to like ballads and just like morose laments. (laughs) They'd be like, just listen to something cheerful (laughs) just I don't know and just smile and I'm like I'm not upset I just love it um and and that's kind of 
translated to the way that I create music as well, mm. um, is that I find it's the best way for me to convey those kind of negative spaces that I live in mm. or those um, downer kind of situations. Um, or to relate to someone else's negative experiences. Mm. Um, I heard it somewhere and I don't remember where, but um, when people are happy, they're kind of happy in the same way. Mm. And, but, but in your negative emotions and your sadness or your anger um, or, or your mourning, anything that's like not just the generic happy or positivity um, expresses itself in so many different ways. Mm. And it's so beneficial to be able to relate to people through those through those experiences of pain and and hardship, um, in order to relate to them and to understand the way that they see the world. Um, so that's that's a lot of the times what I try to access when I'm writing or when I'm performing is is the emotion of the person that I'm trying to empathize with. I try to um, inhabit their worldview. So I can convey, um, convey that pers- perspective to other people, mm-hmm. um, and and additionally for me, music is so much about helping others. When I write music, I try and and write it in a way that's gonna make someone feel like they're not alone, which is what I needed growing up. I feel like a lot of times what people tend to be passionate about is just helping their younger self. Yeah. Um, yeah. Providing what they needed when they were younger mm-hmm. or even right now. Like I, I still have this, this need to feel like I'm not just going through it by myself, that I'm, I'm not the only one experiencing what I'm experiencing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I try and both do that by providing myself as someone saying, I relate to this, but also just offering that to the world. One of the last questions I wanted to ask was, you know, we've talked about you as a musician, mm-hmm. uh, your faith life, and then also coming out. What does, um, where do all these elements of your life kind of point you to now? What's, um, where are you heading? What are you doing? Yeah. Um, I guess... A couple different things. So first is that I'm kind of discerning this call in my life um, to that that my vocation has to center around something doing reconciliation work Mm -hmm. um, between queer communities and conservative communities of faith, Mm -hmm. um, which is a little daunting. (laughs) (laughs) I Um, know the feeling, (laughs) but. That's, those are the, the conservative environments of faith are the ones that I grew up in and the ones mm-hmm. that shaped me and I believe in them and yeah. I believe in their capacity to love and to accept and to affirm. Um, and so I'm hoping that by existing in them as a queer person, I can, I can humanize, um, my, my identity as a, as a gay man and, and hopefully humanize larger queer populations to people that would otherwise think poorly of us or not even think of us at all. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping to do that work. And, and I think that's kind of what, um, I'm gathering my, 
graduate education is going to center around is hopefully developing mm-hmm. theology um, to go through that and to um, call others into it as well. Um, I don't think there's a huge population of people that are called to it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that there's more out there and I want us to find ways to do it together because it can feel very isolating. Um, Mm -hmm. But in my art, (laughs) um, I think I tend to try to create music from more of a universally inhabitable space. Um, But I also have found myself gravitating more towards poetry um, and that I feel readily able to just shove a queer agenda into people's faces. (laughs) Um, <laughs> that's, that's actually really interesting that switching mediums yeah. is switching kind of your messaging. It's been, it's been bizarre to me to, un, to unravel that, but I think part of that is form. I feel a lot more free in poetry, mm. um, to, to use language the way that I need to in, in songwriting. I feel a lot more constricted. Of, like I have to fit rhyme and meter and I need to fit it into um, specific stanzas of verse and chorus and bridge. Um, but with poetry, I feel just a lot more fluidity and flexibility to move in that. And in that, I also feel like I have more ability to be responsible with the way that I, um, present my queer identity. Um, since it's not something that's universal. Um, when I'm talking, when I'm writing a love song, like it's way easier to just be kind of neutral ground and, and write in a way that um, a lot of people can relate to. But when I'm talking about my experience of, of being a, a queer person of faith walking in conservative communities, that um, it's a little more specific. It's a little <laughs> more specific. And so I, wanna, I want that freedom to be able to dig into... Um, the words and the way that I'm using them to to kind of uncover this truth that I'm trying to present. Mm. Um, And so that's that's where my creative work has been centering recently is around poetry. Um, And and that's verged into spoken word a little bit as well. Um, But yeah, I've I've really enjoyed that and I've really enjoyed presenting that to people as well because I feel like it's just an authentic representation of me and my heart. Um, and I have found that people respond to it really well, which is yeah. exciting. And I think a good way um, for me to navigate, God, I keep saying it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a really good way for me to um, communicate, I guess, with people um, who don't share this identity of saying, well, here's like this kind of neatly packaged brief image of one experience that I've had or one emotion that I've had, um, read it and understand. Um, and, and that's helped with talking with people who don't share this identity. That's great. And that's, I think we all need more of that across political lines, Mm -hmm. race, sexual orientation, just having those, points of access to understanding like that. For me, it's been so lovely to read poetry from um, specifically Arabic or Mm. um, 
also Muslim um, writers um, because they, they convey such truth that I can understand and feel um, without knowing how they went through that, without having experienced it myself. Um, and one of the most striking examples for me recently is someone, um, I, I wish I knew who it was, um, and I might look it up later and send it to you, um, but she wrote, um, how dare I love a word without knowing it in Arabic, mm-hmm. um, and, and that was such just a fundamentally powerful concept to me of like, this separation from your roots and from your origin of, of loving a concept of a word um, and what it means to you and, and the way that you've lived, um, but somehow not, not knowing it the way you should. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, so, so reading poetry from um, people who are not how I see myself has been just so incredibly helpful to relating to and empathizing with them. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that you did. Yeah, you bet. And all that you are. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me to. Yeah. Thank you to Zach again for sharing his experiences with us and for being our very first guest on Out Loud. Zach mentioned a few resources throughout the episode that we thought would be helpful, and so we've linked to those in the episode description. This episode of Out Loud was a labor of love by yours truly, but it would not have been possible without help from my fabulous editor and lead consultant extraordinaire, Meg McKellen. Meg also had lots of ideas for our trailer, and so if you enjoyed that preview of our show, you have Meg to thank. To learn more about Out Loud, follow us on social media. Our handle is Out Loud Stories. That's all one word or visit our website at outloudstories.com. Tell us what you thought about the episode and let us know you're listening. To wrap up, we have a very special spoken word piece from Zach entitled, Despite. Please enjoy and thanks for listening. Despite. A word so well-intentioned as to direct attention away from the tension that bubbles up between good and bad, like baking soda and vinegar in a science fair volcano invention. A word that's used to say that someone has looked away from the ways that you've failed in order to lodge your successes and place laurels on your name. That name that still holds their disdain. They've seen, they know, your failures and your bad should have had you disqualified, but we'll overlook, look around under your undeserving self because we care, despite Because the alternative is too cruel, and to see ourselves as rude is unbearable, and so we tell that voice inside that it's okay to break some rules. And then we feel like saviors looking down upon the peons, savoring our grip on those whose self-esteem rests in our fingers' tendons, which can rend their souls beyond mending. Until. Until we become receivers of despite. Until we feel their spite sink down, down, down into our bones, their veiled disapproval and anchor tied to feet which stay limp in the fear that the way they kick might be wrong. 
but it doesn't take long for us, once we've had one more taste of knowing their fate belongs to us, to turn back and launch point-blank that lead-tipped spear which we fear would otherwise point at us. And it drives us to addiction, and we have to get our fix in any which way, any realm of life that'll take it, and it turns out they all do. When we excuse a man who views women as pieces of meat to be sampled at his volition from his actions because we want him in a certain position, and we want to make sure that no one might think that there's a plank in our vision, despite. When a man invites his peers to talk but then turns the lock and his power and influence keeps them from walking out, and he happens to star in that one TV show you love to watch. Despite, when a man loves a man, and he's your child, and you find him vile for who he is, but you cannot separate the love you have for everything you wish he was from his body, despite, a word that grants asylum to predators and in the same stroke reminds trans folk that they are not valid unless someone who is allows them to be. It has been said and taught and sold and bought that we are loved without limit by a Father God who lives in heaven despite our sins. But love with an asterisk cannot be unconditional. Love is not a consolation prize, and even though or an averting of the eyes from what could be a prize as a lacking of perfection, love, unconditional love, is held for what exists, always for what is, not what could be but is not. Yet for a section of our congregations, we've reduced a God beyond comprehension to someone who directs attention away from the tension that bubbles up between good and bad, like baking soda and vinegar in a science fair volcano invention. I do not come with answers. I am not a physician who can offer some prescription to rid the body of its sickness. But despite this, I am here. Despite the thousands of despites launched my way throughout my years like lead-tipped spears, I am here. Yet too many spears have found homes in the hearts of too many queers, and God helped the ones who threw them thinking it was love. But still, I'm here. And I remain not despite, but because... Because the one who loves without limit found it fitting that because was more important than despite. Because God so loved the world. Because God so loves the world. No asterisks.